King Herod heard of it, all the healing and the anointing and the raising the dead that Jesus was up to, curing the sick with his disciples. He heard about it because Jesus' name had become made known. Some were saying, John the baptizer has been raised from the dead, and for this reason, these powers are at work in him. Others said, it's Elijah. Others said, it's a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For Herod himself had sent men who arrested John, bound him, and put him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because Herod had married her, which is gross. For John had been telling Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to kill him, but she couldn't, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and Herod protected him. When he heard him, though, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he liked John. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his courtiers and officers and for the leaders of Galilee. When his daughter, Herodias, came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests, and the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it. He solemnly swore to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you even half of my kingdom. She went out then and said to her mother, What should I ask for? Her mother replied, the head of John the baptizer. Immediately, she rushed back to the king and requested, I want you to give me at once the head of John the baptizer on a platter. The king was deeply grieved, yet out of regard for his oaths and for the guests, he didn't want to refuse her. So immediately, the king sent a soldier of the guard with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison, brought his head on a platter, and gave it to the girl. The girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard about it, they came and took John's body and laid it in the tomb. The gospel of the Lord. Some of you know that I have a strange kind of penchant for crime dramas and murder mysteries and documentaries of the like. Not fictional horror stories so much, but true crime, the stuff that really happened by and to actual people in the world. I watch any of it. Not necessarily proud of it. I think it's a little strange. Not sure where it came from. Not sure why I should want to know all these things. When my kids were little, we had to kind of hide my Netflix viewing history so they didn't open up Netflix, see what daddy had been watching, and have nightmares because of it. So oddly enough, I just finished a book called Last Call about a serial killer whose calling card was the dismemberment of his victims. 
And just the other night, I started watching a new documentary on Netflix about a woman in Brazil who pulled a Herod or Herodias, depending on who you want to blame for John's beheading in this morning's gospel story. This woman killed and beheaded her husband, too, among other things. And they made a movie about it. There's no moral as such to either of these stories, really, but it amused me that I happened upon them both alongside this crazy, creepy, horrible story about Herod and Herodias and John the Baptist literally losing his head all in the span of a week or two in my casual reading and movie watching. The story goes that Herod the king caught wind of this Jesus from Nazareth and about how he'd started to gather his disciples and to send them out into the villages around Galilee. He gave those disciples authority over unclean spirits, remember? He gave them some pretty detailed instructions, which we heard about last week, about where they should travel and what they should wear and how they were supposed to get to where they were going, what they were supposed to do once they got there. And his followers hit the road. And they proclaimed this good news. They cast out demons. They healed people who were sick from all kinds of things. And along with everything Herod was hearing about Jesus came all kinds of rumor and all kinds of questions, too, about how something so good, too good to be true, really, could actually be true. So there was suspicion that Jesus was some kind of prophet like Elijah or Amos or Micah from way back in the day. But Herod had this crazy fear that Jesus wasn't really Jesus at all, that Jesus somehow might be John the Baptist, whom we just heard Herod had had beheaded. Yeah, Herod thought Jesus was John, reconfigured, reheaded, come back from the grave. And so maybe to prove that Jesus really was Jesus, or maybe just to tell a really good, gory, gruesome, first-century kind of Netflix story, the writer of Mark's gospel goes into all this detail. He tells the backstory of just how Herod came to execute John the Baptist in the first place. Like Jesus, John the Baptist was preaching and teaching and proclaiming good news too. He was baptizing down by the river. He was paving the way for the Messiah in Jesus. He was demanding repentance and he was promising forgiveness of sins to any who showed up to that water. He was announcing the kingdom of God, which if you were a king like Herod, would really get your attention. And it might make you worry and threaten your power even if you didn't understand the difference between God's kingdom and your own kingdom in the world. And that's why Herod didn't like John the Baptist. He respected him, we're told. He regarded him as a holy and righteous man. He feared him because of that even enough that he wouldn't have him killed like his wife wanted him to do. But instead, Herod kept John imprisoned and under watch like some kind of political prisoner who threatened his power, who might upset the social order of things, who at least, perhaps, threatened his ego, if nothing else. But then this creepy King Herod, who likes to watch his daughter dance at dinner parties... There are people who think it was that kind of dancing. 
which isn't a stretch for someone who might marry his brother's wife, right? Herod gets himself into a pickle. When his daughter dances for the king and his guests, the king tells her that he's going to give her whatever her little heart desires. So maybe he'd had too much to drink. Maybe he was trying to show off for his friends. Maybe he was just so enamored by daddy's little girl. Who knows? But when she runs out to ask mommy what she should take as her reward, her mother sees the opportunity to get what she's wanted all along. And that was revenge against John the Baptist for suggesting that her marriage to the king was unlawful, immoral, unrighteous, unseemly, whatever. So Mrs. Herod gets her little girl to go do her dirty work by asking daddy for John's head on a platter. Imagine the psychiatry bills she would have if it were 2021. And when she does this, King Herod has to oblige because he's already struck this deal. He's already made this bargain. He's already sworn an oath, and an oath is an oath. A promise was a promise. The king's word was the king's word, even for a creep like Herod, even when it was offered to a child, especially when it was proclaimed in the front of leaders from around Galilee. So John the Baptist was as good as dead. And his head was delivered that evening on a platter to the child for her mother. If only there were surveillance footage or DNA evidence of it all, Netflix would turn it into a four-part limited series which we could all enjoy. And like a titillating limited series on Netflix, there doesn't seem to be a moral to this story, quite frankly. All by itself, anyway. On the surface, it reads like not much more than some good, gruesome, gory kind of gossip, if you like that sort of thing. So what does any of this have to do with our life and our faith? Why is it part of our gospel narrative? Why are we talking about it on Sunday morning in good company during worship, for crying out loud. Well, smarter people than me have said that it's no mistake the gospel writer of Mark tells this story as he does, and that he places it where he does, right after Jesus sends his first disciples out into the world to begin their ministry, and right before they return to hear more, to learn more, to be fed some more at the feet of their teacher. Among other things, this story reminds us that following Jesus isn't easy, to put it simply. Even if you're as cool and as faithful and as righteous as John the Baptist. Life as disciples can be hard. Proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, stuff about repentance and the forgiveness of sins, the grace, mercy, peace, and justice of God isn't always what the world wants to hear, isn't always what people want to believe. It's rarely what any of us is always prepared with faith and courage enough to do a lot of the time. Kings and others in power might be fascinated and fearful of it all so much that it could cost you your head after all. But the good news in all of this for us, still, today, is the same good news that John the Baptist proclaimed and promised and believed himself, in spite of 
so much ugliness. That someone better was coming. That something bigger was on the way. That God in Jesus would arrive and overcome and undo all the ugly, all the gruesome, and all the gory. That God in Jesus would offer grace where there's judgment, would offer love where there's hate, would bring light where there's darkness, would bring life even where there is death. Because Mark's gospel really tells this story as a foreshadowing of what would happen to Jesus himself soon enough at his own crucifixion. Even Jesus Christ, the Messiah, especially Jesus, because he was the Messiah, wasn't removed from the dangers of the world around him. Jesus showed up to enter into all the ugly, all the fearful, all the ungracious ways of this world to let the rest of us know we could do that too. That we don't have to just be scared of all the drama or the sadness or the struggle or the sin or the injustice or the dying that surrounds us so much of the time in our lives and in this world. We have good news to proclaim in the face of all of that. And when the struggle comes, when the sadness hits, when the loved one dies, when the marriage ends, when the friendships fail, when the you-know-what hits the fan, we're reminded not just that life in the world hurts, not just that it's hard and unholy and unfair a lot of the time, we're reminded, too, that this is God's world, after all, and always in the end. And it's into this world where buildings collapse in the middle of the night, where presidents get assassinated in their own homes, where suicide wreaks havoc on a family, where too much tragedy seems to win too much of the time. It's into all of this struggle and sadness and sin and despair that God's love comes. And it's into this same world, all of its darkness included, that each of us is sent to, like those first disciples, with good news, with great hope, with an abiding promise that God's love for the whole of it wins every time, in the end, always, in Jesus Christ our Lord, crucified and risen for the sake of the world. Amen.